Welcome to An Abundant Future with Matt Powers. I'm your host, Matt Powers, and I'm talking today to two amazing professors that are here to set us straight, here to guide us and give us some clarity and a lot of the things that are going on in the internet, a lot of questions that people are having. I'm not alone. You're not alone. We're asking these questions together. And now we've got some amazing answers from some amazing individuals. First, we have Bruce Blumberg, who's a UC Irvine professor. He's an advisor for Non-Toxic Irvine, which is an incredible organization that has been working to make Irvine and other cities and towns everywhere free of toxins. So the schools, so all the government and all the administrative buildings, they don't have glyphosate. They don't have 2,4-D. They don't have any of these toxic chemicals used on their site. Instead, they're using non-toxic alternatives. They're improving the grass using compost. They're doing all these amazing things. But in order to get people on board, in order to get people understanding, they did, they did the wise thing. They partnered up with people like Bruce, people who can vet them, people who have the scientific understanding and clarity that they can communicate and whether it's, you know, they're testifying, whether they're, you know, talking to the town council, whether they're working with legislative language, this is how we can do it in all of our communities. We can declare, gather together and declare that we don't want these toxins. And then we can tie in together people like these professors to really help us have that official understanding and language so that it pushes through all the roadblocks. And we end up just like Irvine, where they don't have any toxins being used. So let's talk to Bruce and find out how this happened and how we can do it in our own situation. The whole toxicity, the trying to get that, that, uh, that ideal, because it's an ideal, of a pure or purified or clean diet um, is, is what I kind of struggle with on a daily basis. And as a scientist who's, who knows, you know, all the different stressors in our environment, who sees it in the blood, I'm not alone in wanting to hear from someone like you about what we can do to protect our family, protect our young children as they're developing, even though we've either made bad choices or have had situations like my wife has had radiation and even the tests they did were radioactive before we had our second son. And so, I mean, what can we do, in, in, in your professional opinion, um, to protect ourselves and to be wiser now? Well, there's multiple levels uh, of what we can do depending on your personal situation, your resources, and your tolerance for making drastic changes in your lifestyle. So I would say the very first thing for everyone to do is to make your own food. By that, I don't mean grow your own food and, you know, slaughter your own animals and things like that. I mean, go to the store, buy fresh ingredients and make your food, make your meals. Don't buy packaged things. Don't eat out. You know, you control your food so that you know whatever you eat, you know what the components of that are. That's job one. If that food is organic, so much the better. With the caveat that, you know, um, there's a lot of, how shall I say, um, self-policing in the organic industry. So there's been several studies where uh, there's one famous one where they found phthalates at extremely high levels in organic spices that came from China. Mm-hmm. 
So even though the people were doing everything correctly, they were misled by a, a product that was supposed to be organic that wasn't. So you have no real way to control that. All you can do is, is take your best shot. How do you deal with that uncertainty? We just do the best we can. You know, I, I, I'm not 15 years old, so what happens to me, what I eat, has much less of an impact than it would if I were young. We eat organic as much as we can. My wife is a great cook. She makes almost everything fresh. We rarely eat out. Everything that goes in my daughter's mouth is organic. So we do the best we can. But maybe, you know, the, there's a price premium on organic foods, and not everyone can pay that. That's why I say fresh food is the most important. And if that can be organic, much better. But even if you just go with fresh food, you're much better off than buying packaged, prepackaged food made from ingredients that you don't really know what they are. We said this discussion with my daughter all the time. I say, don't buy those cookies. Those aren't good. Said, well, how do you know, Papa? How do you know this is not good? How do you know everything? And I said, well, I don't know everything, but look at the ingredients on these cookies. And look at the whole list of things. Now, what do you put in cookies when you and your mom make cookies? You know, we put in milk, flour, eggs, butter, chocolate chips. You don't put all this whole list of chemicals. She's since become very extreme. She's 100% vegan, and for a while she was raw vegan, which is about as difficult as you can, as you can make your life. Do you test your food um, regularly to look for these kinds of toxins, or are you just steering for the uh, organic? We're just going for the organic. There's, unfortunately, there's no way that that the average consumer, even you know, an educated consumer with a lab like me, can test. At best, you can say, are there, you know, are there residues of glyphosate in there? Is there um, permethrin in there. If you know what chemicals to look for, you can test for those, and but those tests are expensive. But you can't just take, you know, a head of lettuce and ask what chemicals are here. No average person can do that, and most labs can't even do that. That's fascinating because I don't know if you you've been aware, but on Kickstarter and Indiegogo, they keep selling these little pocket devices or things you plug into your cell phone. They're like, and it's your you know, pesticide detector. Is that even real? I'm not familiar with those. I, 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 so I couldn't say for certain, but I'm skeptical that mm. they do more than test for a small number of, of pesticides. If you say that this thing can detect any pesticide, then I'd be really skeptical of that. If you said some small device that somebody made could test for glyphosate or could test for um, permethrin or, or, or something like that, Maybe. That is really that, good that to know. Could, that could be achievable. That's really good but to know because I think a lot many, of people... I don't think so. Okay. That's really, really good to know because a lot... I mean, for years I've looked at these things and with my friends and family debated getting one because they're always expensive and you never know, you know, how how well the science pans out. So I recently interviewed... A lot of wacky stuff out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I recently interviewed this uh, this consultant for medical cannabis and they did laboratory readouts and and they were doing it every single time and i was like you guys have to do this they go oh no consumers don't don't you know they they go by this they don't go by anything else now and i was like really i was like yeah and so 
my thoughts immediately was like, why can't we have this on the tomatoes or the corn? Or do you think labs? Yeah, but it's expensive. Yeah, it's expensive. And hmm. So if you just want to say, I'm going to take this cannabis and I'm going to, uh, you know, put it in acetone or 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 chloroform or some kind of solvent that will attack, that will extract organic chemicals, and then put those in the gas chromatograph and see what I can find, that will detect some amount of, of, of substances. And if you have standards for them, then you can say, oh, this thing, this peak at 19.7 seconds must be tetrahydrocannabinol, and this peak at 28 minutes must be something else. But if they don't exactly match the standards that you have, then you don't know what they are. It's just a peak, just a blip. Really? That's really oh, fascinating. Because, yeah. I mean... Different extraction methods get different chemicals. And some chemical... So that technology requires that the chemical can be volatilized. Right? So you heat it, it has to become, it has to become a gas. If it doesn't do that, we say if it doesn't fly in the gas chromatograph, you don't see it. doesn't mean it's not there. You just don't see it. You need to use a different technology. Wow. So that's why I say you have to know what you're looking for ahead of time. This is in order amazing. To be able to find it. You, you've shattered certain, like, preconceived notions of mine in just, like, 10 minutes. This is incredible. So what, what, sh what should people do in the next six months to, to move forward on imitating and adopting the non-toxic Irvine model? They should get together in their local communities and their HOAs and whatever and resolve that they want to live in a, in a, a, pestic, in, in, in a toxin-free environment insofar as possible, and they should lobby their local lawmakers, their city council, their HOA boards, whatever, to say, we don't want this anymore. And yes, there's people that say it's not harmful and the EPA says it's allowed, but we don't want it because we're not certain. We want less toxins in our life, no matter who says they're safe. That's superb. And then I would say, I would add to that, to well. do exactly what they did with you, is, is turn to your local area, talk to local educators and scientists, and mm -hmm. get them involved too. Yes, I, I often testify at city council meetings. So, you know, I, I show up wherever Kim Conte asks me to go because <laughs> I trust that she's going to she's going to bring me to places where I can do something good. She's not going to waste my time in front of a bunch of people who have their mind made up and they're they're they don't want to hear the facts. So that's a really great closing point I think to make is where should we be listening? I think a lot of people these days face so much uncertainty. They feel like the news isn't quite right. They feel like things that were once trustworthy 10 years ago, 20 years ago, they're not so, quite sure about. And so where should we turn for this kind of information? Um, when Who should we be listening to? That is a really, really tough question. For the average person, you know, the average educated, informed person, who do you believe? And that is a really difficult question. Um, you can't believe the EPA. That's a political agency. It's not a scientific agency, as you know. Mm -hmm. As you can see by how they behave lately, they've taken, they've expunged all, all, all talk of global climate change from their website, and and they overruled their own scientists approving renewal of a toxic pesticide because the companies lobbied them to. Mm. So you can't trust the agencies that you should be able to trust. 
And that's a very sad situation. Um, I can't tell you to go read the scientific literature because you just don't know. You know, when I talk to some of the moms, they say, and that's, I had the argument with, with, with Den Honeycutt from Moms Across America, she, who's just a devotee of Sansil and Seneff, the ones who believe that glyphosate is the source of all ailments known to humankind. And they keep publishing in these journals that are basically unrefereed and you just pay money and they'll publish it there. And, and the average person has no way to know, is that a reputable journal? And, the, and the, 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 the paper has gone rigorous, has undergone rigorous peer review, or whether it's basically an advertisement, which is what you would have to call a paper you publish in a journal that just takes your money and publishes it without doing any kind of peer review on it. That's an advertisement. Mm-hmm. And you have no way to know that, and that's a tough situation. But I think you have to trust your intuition and, and just just live with the mantra that less is more. Less chemical exposure is better than more chemical exposure. And to the extent that you can get rid of toxic chemicals, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, um, all kinds of food additives, to the extent that you can remove those from your life, you, you have to be better off. I mean, I can't promise you what percent more healthy it's going to make you or whether it's going to influence your Crohn's disease or, or influence the sensitivities that your wife has, but it makes good sense to reduce the uncertainty, right? To reduce the amount of chemicals of unknown properties, really, untested properties in your life. I think that's a worthwhile goal. Absolutely. I, I've, I've used that mantra many times. Less is so much more in so many ways, but here it is quite poignant. I appreciate this was such a good call. Thank you so much. This was a gift to all the listeners and to me personally. I'm happy to help however I can. So where can we catch you next? I don't have too much of an online presence because I, I, I don't have time. I do have a book coming out. It's going to be released on March 13th called The Obesogen Effect that talks about how we get fat and all the factors that influence our weight, including obesogenic chemicals, but also including things like the type of foods that you eat and when you eat the foods and how you sleep. All the factors that we know have some effect on obesity that aren't being discussed. Wow, that's incredible. It's a simple matter of balancing your caloric checkbook. No one would be obese because it's easy to balance your checkbook, right? We all do it every month. Wow. Well, I will be looking for that, and I'm sure we all will be. Thank you so much. And Okay, you're welcome. And I look forward to continuing learning from you in the future. I'll do my best. Wow, that was incredible. Bruce gave us such insight, such clarity in such a short period of time. He is truly an amazing teacher, and I'm so happy that he is involved with Non-Toxic Irvine, and he's helped pushing that mission forward. All right, next up we have Dr. Rattan Lal. Dr. Rattan Lal was where a lot of the studies came from for my book on car- the sections on carbon and for Eric Tonsmeyer's book, The Carbon Farming Solution. That's where I originally found Dr. Rattan Lal's work as I was looking through all of Eric's different references. 
a lot of these studies that we read about, it's really hard for us to understand what is actually going on here and how does this translate to me and my life and what does it translate to like what, what we can actually do and in terms of like how much time do we have left to make a difference? A lot of people were worried about this. A lot of people are dealing with this uncertainty and it's gnawing at them. So I, I went ahead and asked Rattan Law and said, you know, what are we going to do? How long is this going to take? What can we do? Is this real? And it was really awesome. He gave us such good answers. So let's listen. Let's hear what Professor Rattan Law has to say about how soils can save our future. I think the main thing that I would like to convey the message to students is that soil and agriculture are normally considered as a problem uh, for uh, environmental pollution and gaseous emissions and global warming. The fact is properly managed agroecosystems and judiciously managed soil are integral to any solution to climate change, improving the environment, advancing food and nutrition security, and achieving the sustainable development goals of the United Nations. So somewhere the existing mindset has to be changed. And uh, that will come through uh, teaching the student that soil uh, matters, in addressing global issues and indeed uh, the solutions to the current and emerging environmental issues lie underfoot and soils have a tremendous power to address those concerns may it be food security may it be malnutrition may it be water pollution and eutrophication algal bloom May it be global warming and emission of greenhouse gases. May it be dwindling biodiversity. Uh, may it be a static value of the landscape. All begin with soil. And that is the teaching that we have to do. I, uh, as a president of the International Union of Soil Science, send a letter every month, first of the month, uh, to the soil science community around the world. Uh, my letter last uh, month, 1st of November, was on the issue of solutions underfoot. And I'll share it with you. And I'm sending one tomorrow, 1st of December, which say the same thing that soil science curricula should address in addition to soil disciplines like soil physics, soil chemistry, Wow. So they should address soil and climate, soil and water, soil and food, soil and environment, soil and biodiversity, soil and human health, soil and industrial raw material. So we should begin to reach out and teach these classes, which are application of soil addressing the global issues wow i want to take part in that and i want to study what you I'll put out i'll send you both of those letters uh, the one i submitted uh, circulated last uh, month and one that's going out tomorrow morning i just finished it's actually been writing down in my daily goals 
down on yeah. my, my list for later, you know, um, create yeah. soil curriculum for a miniature soil course, but maybe it shouldn't be miniature. Maybe it exactly. should be that's, I will send you both of those letters, which do not have the curricula, but it suggests what the curricula should be all about. Mm-hmm. So principles, which is what I love. Yeah. Okay. I'll do that. Send me an email and then I'll attach both of those tomorrow because I will have last month's as well as. And then you can go to our website of my center and uh, also see the previous. It's a monthly, so tomorrow is the 12th. Okay. I've been 12 months. What website is that? Uh, I will ask Laura to send. It's a website of the Carbon Management and Sequestration Center. Okay, I'll, I'll get it and I'll put it Ohio in, in, in our link. I'll, yeah. I'll show everyone. You'll find quite a lot of material there. Excellent. So, and if you don't find it, write it to Laura Conover. I think she was in touch with you this afternoon. Yes. And, um, and she will tell you how to access that material. Oh, this is perfect. This is exactly what I need, a, a new direction. Right. This is wonderful. Okay. So, right. What's your next point? My, my next point... Um, is to try to deepen my understanding a little bit because I'm I'm writing and my whole thing is I'm breaking things down so that they're into uh, always trying to make the conversation so that it scales up accurately because I've I've I'm fed up with lower education with elementary schools where the information yeah. doesn't scale it's not true yeah. you know what I mean and so um. When I look at uh, the paper where we talk about uh, corn uh, sequestering carbon um, 400 times the annual increase, and that's the atmosphere above it, how does that relate, um, like in terms of... Well, what they are talking about is, um, it's really a little bit rhetoric uh, more than anything else. They are talking about if you were to take an acre of corn field and check the amount of carbon which is contained in the atmosphere from the ground level all the way to the stratosphere. Then how much carbon is going into the corn field through photosynthesis in one year is 400 times what is contained in the column of atmosphere above that corn field. That's super powerful. <laughs> I love that. It is powerful, but I just want to make sure you understand. Yeah, but how, how do yeah. we turn that into like an action? Like if we regeneratively well, the grow statement, our corn. Yeah, the action statement is, uh, and it's not my language, it's, uh, I have written it and cited it, that if we can do what, if we can understand what plants do with carbon dioxide, then the future of climate change is in our hands. I feel like, uh, and I've studied this, and it's hard to know, the, like the, the like the, where our actual numbers are. I mean, we measure the environment, but it's hard to well, know. Well, I'll like... send you my paper in which these numbers are. <laughs> let, let me. Uh, let me back up what I'm saying. If you take all the green plants of the planet Earth, every year these green plants, the trees, grasses, shrubs, woodland, everything, they take from the atmosphere 120 gigaton of carbon and put it into their biomass. 
in fact the number is 123 gigaton right so but most of it goes back so if out of 123 supposing we learn how to keep back 10% just a hypothetical case right like if 10% of 123 is 12 gigaton again yeah and that's 10 gigaton that's 12 gigaton that's more than current fossil fuel combustion Right. So does the soil it's I mean in my mind it feels so hard to calculate how much soil we actually have left but and how much room well, there is but is it true that we have 4 to 5 times the amount of space on top of of like uh to fit in the the carbon that we've released since industrial revolution began because we've been cutting well, the let, soil for for 10,000 years. Well, let me give you the estimate. If you take the ice-free land area of the world, ice-free land area, which is about uh, 10 uh, billion hectare, ice-free land area, not the frozen salts, not the permafrost, not Alaska, Siberia, and that kind of thing. So this land, if you take top one meter of the soil, top one meter of ice-free soil of the world, it contains 1500 gigaton of carbon okay so the vegetation of the world all the trees and woodland contains 600 gigaton and if you take the atmosphere it contains today today 870 gigaton but why i said today is because every minute it's going up that's But why if I, can, if i can take uh, how much was carbon in the soil when agriculture began the amount of carbon in soil was 130 gigaton more than it is today about now what we can put back into the soil is approximately equal to what we have lost from the soil it's like a container like a like a glass and uh, you can only put beer as much in that glass as you have already taken out of it if you have drank already half of the beer out of it you can put back half more from a bottle so soil is the same way uh, soil was full of carbon under natural condition before humans started messing it up and since then we have lost from soil alone not the trees 130 gigaton that's the most recent estimate now if we can put 130 gigaton back how much of drawdown will that create between the atmosphere it's about 65 parts per million of co2 And it seems like we could do that within 10 years if agriculture is no, no. no. No, no. We can probably do that within about two generations. So 40 years. years. 50 years. 50. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. To be more realistic, we can do that definitely if we do it properly and systematically between now and 2100. You and I will be here. 
and at that time uh, the trees will also join so the tree part is separate that's additional yeah there's and then the ocean part is another a wild card in that's, the whole addi that's additional that's additional trees and oceans are additional i'm just talking about soil absolutely and it's really exciting um, to, to hear yeah. the clarification. But it, it is not overnight, no. I think it, to be realistic, uh, it will be two generations, but more appropriately, that's planned. You see, we have been, I have been talking about it since 1980s, and nothing has happened yet. I've been talking about it at least 30 years, more like 40 years and nothing has happened. But now people are beginning to take interest. When I say people, it is the journalists, it is the policy makers, not necessarily our policy maker, but world policy makers are beginning to take interest. And so, if we, let us say we begin by 2020, really get serious, it is going to be at least two generations, probably three, before yeah. we can that task it's not overnight when people say we can do it uh, in five ten years that's not correct okay that's good to know <laughs> that's it's, why a slow pro it's like a building you can destroy a building bring one bulldozer and a, a crane with a ball swinging on it and it's gone uh, you want to rebuild that that may take uh, a whole year we have lost the soil carbon, uh, putting it back in a slow process. I think a lot of people feel like they could do biochar and then suddenly, you know, take it back in. Usually that's one option. And uh, the thing to remember is um, we have 300,000 type of known soils, soil types, 300,000. Wow. And to assume that one technology fits everywhere yeah. is being a little bit presumptuous and naive. Yep. So we have a whole range of technologies and it's like medicine. Uh, one medicine cannot fit everybody. So it depends on how big a person is, but similarly soil, they're in different climate, they're different landscape, they're different social customs, and different farm size, they're different economics. So there's a whole, the basic principle is not a technology such as biochar or conservation agriculture or region. The basic principle is that our land use and management system must create a positive soil carbon budget. What that means is that we put carbon in soil by biochar, by agroforestry, by conservation agriculture, by manuring, by composting, by cover cropping, whatever, it must be more than the losses of carbon from the soil by erosion, by mineralization, by leaching. And it is that carbon budgeting that we need to teach our students how to do it. Do you think that a carbon credit economy is inevitable? Um, we have been talking about it carbon credit, I think we did not succeed, although few people got millionaire. Um, what we need to do is to 
to compensate land managers and farmers by a system called payment for ecosystem services. That's a very different concept than carbon credits. Payment for ecosystem services mean when they put carbon back in soil, it mitigates climate change, it improves water quality, it increases biodiversity, it does several other things. So what are those ecosystem services worth? Wow. Society values. And we must have a system to compensate farmers for doing provisioning of those services. So we have to understand what the cost of those services. It goes back to Jared Hardin's concept of um, uh, what he called global commons, tragedy of the commons. When you undervalue any resource, whether it is soil, whether it's atmosphere, whether it's ocean, whether it's rivers, when you undervalue that resource, it suffers from the tragedies of the commons. And we do not want soil, land, atmosphere, water to become the global commons as they now are. We want to stop that. And that requires education at all levels. Primary school, secondary school, college, general public, policymakers. I completely agree. And that, that's a completely different thinking. Have you heard of the regenerative organic certification they're trying to propose? I have heard about it, and uh, I uh, have talked to a few people about it. I like regenerative system, but as I mentioned before, the problem we have facing us is so humongous. I want to promote basic concepts, create a positive ecosystem budget rather than negative. And how you actually do it will depend on where you are and what your goals are. And that will vary from place to place, from soil to soil, from culture to culture, from climate to climate. As it should. that, That is one of the options, like biochar. Wow, this is incredible. Thank you so much. I... Okay, I'm glad you called. And uh, if you write something and you want me to review it, uh, I'll be very glad to do that. Absolutely. I would love it if and, you could uh, look you over my... look at those letters I was talking about, uh, you can uh, contact uh, Laura or me. Or we can send an email and we will provide you those uh, right up on like, tomorrow morning's letter and the one last month we talked about curriculum. Okay. Well, thank you so much, and I will definitely stay in contact. Sure, and good luck with your project. Thank you. And I appreciate the fact that people like you are paying attention to soil, and that is very important to me as a soil scientist, and I thank you for doing that. Oh, thank you so much. My my mentor is Dr. Elaine Ingham. She's been teaching me one on one so that I wouldn't screw up the basic, you know, soil food web stuff for children. Very nice. Thank you. All the best to you. All the best to you, too. Bye. Wow. Now that was awesome. 
are you excited about the soil standards like I am? I'm like, oh my word, this is a whole new curriculum I'm gonna write. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not gonna stop working on the Advanced Permaculture Student Online or the three books that I agreed to do for the Kickstarter. I'm still gonna work on those. Those are already locked in. I've got my deadlines, I'm working those out. But I'm really thinking I need to do a separate soil course based around rattan lol standards. It's really exciting. He's, you know, the leading voice. He's working with the UN. And the, the insights he gave us here today should, you know, give us all heart, to, you know, understanding that this is all possible with soil. We need to get on board now. And then we also need to turn to all those other solutions and use them because soil is going to take two generations and that's too long. We need to be moving faster, quicker, so that all these other things that can happen don't happen. We don't like negative tipping points. We want positive tipping points. We want to be going into the valley of abundance, not in the valley, valley of scarcity where it's hard to get out of. So I hope that you got a lot out of this. I hope that you got some insights that you can now apply through your lens of understanding and apply on your landscape and in going forward with the goals you make and the confidence you feel about the choices you make. This year is the year of the regenerative leap. This is 2018. You're part of it, we're part of it. It's gonna be incredible. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively. I'm Matt Powers, and I'm here to help and facilitate that abundant future that we all want. So join me, join us every week at this podcast and in your daily life, doing everything you can, just like we all are, just like I am, doing everything I can to live that regenerative life so that we can all have that abundant future. We're in it together. Have a great one.